Here's what's making headlines on this March 11th. Good morning on this Wednesday, March 11th. Wednesday, March 11th. Hope you guys are exhaling, taking a minute for yourselves. It was the day that changed America, that disrupted our lives, that crushed our economy, that transformed our politics and messed with our psyches, injecting many of us with a new level of fear and paranoia that would divide the country in ways nobody ever anticipated. March 11th, 2020, one year ago, will almost certainly go down as one of the most significant days in our history, the day the full reality of COVID-19 hit home. And to mark the occasion, Yahoo News has conducted an extraordinary oral history filled with gripping interviews with Anthony Fauci, White House advisor Olivia Troy, Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner who made the decision that night to cancel his league season, and with the Arizona woman who, thanks to COVID, fell down the QAnon rabbit hole. We'll talk to two of the reporters who conducted these interviews, Andrew Romano and Dylan Stableford, on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. We now have with us the two Yahoo News correspondents who did this extraordinary oral history, Andrew Romano and Dylan Stableford. Andrew and uh, Dylan, welcome to Skullduggery. Hey, thanks for having us. Quite a project. And of course, you know, just focusing on this one day, this most unusual day, perhaps uh, the most unusual day in our lifetimes. Uh, tell us what you were trying to do in talking to all these folks. What's the message that you were trying to um, glean from everybody? Yeah, I mean, I'll go back to the inspiration for this project. We were thinking about what we could do as the sort of one year anniversary of the onset of the pandemic came up. And I had a vague memory of March 11th as this kind of day when things escalated. I went and looked back at my text messages to kind of jog my memory uh, from that day. And I had an exchange with my mom and we were going back and forth about some of the events of the day, which I'll, I'll get to in a minute. So people remember just how dramatic uh, and intense a day it was. But we, we were kind of exchanging news stories as things were happening. And I said to her, actually, everything seems to have escalated in the last few hours, just the fear. And my mom said, it's entered a whole new level tonight. I feel the fear for the first time. I remember my dad talking about the Spanish flu. Felt like that could never happen again. Silly. And that just brought it home to me how the national consciousness shifted in this moment. Before March 11th, we were elbow bumping and kind of laughing about it. We were kind of humoring the virus. It was somebody else's problem, whether it was Wuhan or uh, the hospitals in Northern Italy. And then suddenly that day, it was our problem. It was all of our problem. And that was just because of this avalanche of events that happened. When we went back and looked at it, it was more even, I think, than Dylan and I remembered. So in quick succession that day, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease expert, 
was on Capitol Hill, sounding the alarm bell saying it's going to get a lot worse. Within minutes of his testimony, the WHO, the World Health Organization, officially came out and declared COVID-19 a pandemic. The stock market was plummeting. Uh, I think it opened uh, more, more than 700 points down within the first 60 seconds that day. President Trump announced kind of this last minute Oval Office address where he revealed that he was going to be restricting travel from Europe. And within minutes of that happening, it's literally like a 10 minute period. It was just insane. Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson revealed that they had tested positive on set in Australia. The NBA uh, revealed that a player had tested positive and that they were going to be suspending their season, becoming the first pro sports league in America to do that. Schools started announcing that they were closing down. It just was this, very rarely do you have this feeling that you're living through history in real time. But especially when you go back and look at the events of that day and recapture kind of how it felt in that moment, you realize this was a dividing line between before the pandemic and then the year that we've all been living with, the experience we've all had, the stories that have unfolded over the last year, it all started in that moment. And so that was sort of the inspiration. It's interesting, Mike and I and all of us live and breathe uh, political news all day long, but I so vividly remember you know, being in bed in the evening and seeing that notification on my phone uh, that uh, Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson had contracted the virus, and uh, it freaked me out. That was the moment when I got scared, and I'm sure for other people it, it was the basketball game being shut down. But uh, Dylan, I wonder when you began this project and you went back and started looking at that day, what did you then remember about March 11th and, and how you reacted personally on that day? I, I, yeah, it's funny. I didn't get any texts from my mom, but I, um, I do remember that day because I walked in, I came in from dinner, uh, me and my girlfriend and the TV was on. It was just at the end of Trump's speech. I walked in and experienced that like 10, 15 minutes. I was like, what's happening? You know, like uh, a lot of people do just looking at the Chirons, not even listening, travel ban from Europe and then Tom Hanks. And then it actually, I think it was the NBA for me. I'm not even a big NBA fan, but Tom Hanks is in Australia. You're still thinking, okay, that's half a world away. And then, but when the NBA shuts down, you know, within six minutes of a player testing positive, then you're kind of like, whoa. So that was my experience. Yeah, well, inspired uh, by you, Andrew, I went back and looked at my own text messages from that day, and I got one from my wife. I had just come back on Amtrak the night before from a trip to New York to tape a skullduggery, I believe. You know, my wife was freaking out about the fact that I'd just been in New York City, I'd just been on a train, and she was admonishing me for not taking it seriously. This is a deadly, she wrote in all caps, serious topic. She wanted me to know that according to the CDC, the incubation period for COVID-19 is approximately five days, which means you could have COVID and not exhibit symptoms until four days from now. So, um, And did you think Marianne was overreacting. <laughs> you know, that's my sort of natural default uh, <laughs> on on these sorts of matters. But, um, but there was that there was that disorienting moment when some people were kind of grasping the severity of it, and other people were kind of stuck in this in between zone. And, and going back and looking at conversations that I had with people at the time really captures that. Like you're talking to friends about how serious this seems, but then you're also like, 
so wait, are we still going to get together for dinner on Friday? You know, you had plans and you didn't know at first if you were supposed to stop your life and change everything. And very quickly, it became clear that that was the case. Everyone started staying home. The message became, you know, whatever, 15 days to flatten the curve, hashtag flatten the curve. And there's almost something, there's set some sadness in going back and looking at almost how naive we were. And I think that's part of the power of this project, thinking that, oh, schools only be closed for two weeks. We'll flatten the curve. This will all be over. I think we all kind of were still clinging to a little bit of that optimism. And Andrew, that was not just true of of us civilians. It was true of the top infectious disease experts like Tony Fauci. So let's talk about some of the things that the, the participants in this oral history told us. He, he talks about the numbers and and how big the numbers could be in terms of fatalities, but he doesn't really believe it, right? He he thinks that they may be exaggerated. That's exactly right. I mean, I knew it was going to get worse, but when I said get worse, I thought we were going to reach potentially the model that Debbie Burks and I were talking about anywhere between, you know, 100,000 and 240,000 at the very, very most. In fact, I thought the 240,000 was a bit of an exaggeration. That's pretty extraordinary that the top expert in the U.S. government didn't quite grasp at that point just how deadly this thing could be. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Look, let's be fair (laughs) to Fauci. That was pretty pessimistic compared to what most of us thought at the time. One of the other things we did for this oral history project was a poll. And I was actually surprised to find this out. I'm the person who kind of runs our polls. Our first COVID poll, uh, our first coronavirus poll, was in the field on March 10th and 11th, 2020. So we had a glimpse of public opinion in the moment right before this avalanche started and right before life changed. And one of the most striking things about that poll when I went back and looked was we asked people, how many Americans do you think will ultimately die because of this? And 88 percent of Americans, nearly everyone. It's impossible to get 88% of Americans to say anything, but nearly everyone said fewer than 10,000. That was what Mm -hmm. we thought. The idea that more than 10,000 people would die was just unthinkable. And so I'll give Fauci credit. (laughs) He was closer, um, but he still wasn't even in the ballpark. And that just shows how this blindsided us. We were not Well, it may also be that if at that point, Fauci is thinking that the United States uh, and and the United States government had the ability to do all of the right things to prevent the spread of the disease, right? Uh, It's not just that. Yes, it is the government doing the right things and having the ability to prevent it, you know, contact tracing and, and you know, implementing stay at home orders and things. But I think and not thing, starting culture wars about masks. Exactly. And Fauci brings this up. Um, he, he says that, you know, basically he, he says something along the lines of there are so many things that contributed to us doing so much worse than other countries. And I think what he means, too, is so much worse than than he expected. And he and other uh, medical experts that we talked to all point to the same things, the politicization of mask wearing and public health advice, and the way that they kind of assumed the country would come together and follow their guidance. And I think a lot of them were really humbled to realize how wrong 
that assumption was. Fauci had a pretty interesting day uh, that day, uh, which he recounts in this uh, in the interview you did with him, Andrew. Just walk us through what um, Fauci told you, and if we've got some of the, or actually, why don't we listen to a bit more of what Fauci had to say? Because he starts out, he's testifying before Congress, before the House that morning, and he's sounding the alarm. Well, whenever you have an outbreak that you can start seeing community spread, which means by definition that you don't know what the index case is and the way you can approach it is by contact tracing. When you have enough of that, then it becomes a situation where you're not going to be able to effectively and efficiently contain it. Whenever you look at the history of outbreaks, what you see now in an uncontained way, and although we are containing it in some respects, we keep getting people coming in from the country that are travel related. We've seen that in many of the states that are now involved. And then when you get community spread, it makes the challenge much greater. So I can say we will see more cases and things will get worse than they are right now. How much worse we'll get will depend on our ability to do two things, to contain the influx of in people who are infected coming from the outside and the ability to contain and mitigate within our own country. Bottom line, it's going to get worse. That was what Fauci is saying on the Hill. And then he's got to cut his testimony short because he's wanted back at the White House. That's right. Yeah. So Fauci kind of walked us through his day. And I, I, just to put this in perspective, I went back and looked at like what the case numbers were at that point. There were only 782 confirmed cases total cumulative across the entire country at that point. Fewer than 20,000 tests have been conducted and 28 people had died. So for Fauci to come out and say, this is going to get so much worse, that again, that is not the mental state that we were in at this point. We were much closer to the state of, well, there's just a couple cases here and there. He has a meeting back at the White House that's been pre-planned with the White House uh, Coronavirus Task Force, the president, the vice president, to talk about something they've been discussing for weeks and that he referred to obliquely uh, in his remarks, which is travel restrictions. There had been a kind of porous travel restriction from China put in place back in January. Now things are taken off in Europe, especially Italy is really overwhelmed, and they're trying to decide whether they need to ban travel from Europe. Um, and so he rushes back. He actually cuts short his testimony. He says, I got to leave. I got to be back at the White House at 1230 um, and, and kind of rushes out of, uh, of Congress. Meanwhile, all the reporters assume because he has said this, uh, he has made this sort of stark prediction about it getting worse, that President Trump called him up and said, get back here. I don't like what you said. And he actually talks to us about what that that moment felt like with the reporters kind of chasing him to his car. Although it's pretty interesting because uh, although that was not the reason he got called back, uh, I mean, his testimony was not the reason he got called back. Uh, he made clear in your interview with him uh, that his relationship with the president was deteriorating and was only getting worse. Uh, I think we have that clip as well. I mean, I... I knew it was not going to be received well. I mean, vibrations you get from the White House that they don't particularly like you're talking about things that are on the one hand true, but on the other hand are alarming. But I just did it, which, as you know, the history 
shows that I was not in good stead. Uh, if you look at my relationship between me and the president and me and the president's people uh, and me and the president's communication department, that I was a little bit of a persona non grata because of what, I, not a little bit, of, but a lot of a persona non grata for what I was saying. But I had to say it because it was the truth. He goes back to the White House. Again, it's not because of what he had testified, although clearly the president and his people didn't like his overall message regardless. This was about banning travel from Europe, which they did that day. They did, yeah. And, and they made a decision at this is a pretty dramatic meeting. Um, Lawrence Wright from the, the New Yorker done some good reporting on it, which we included a little taste of in the uh, oral history, but it was a back and forth between Debbie Burks, who was the leader of the coronavirus task force, Steve Mnuchin, who was the treasury secretary about how this was going to affect the economy, the message it was going to send to the markets. You know, she, it, basically there was a contingent in the White House who's saying, well, you know, just, just tell old people to stay home. We don't have to ban travel from Europe. We don't have to shut down flights. We, you know, we don't want to, you know, crash the economy. And, you know, Debbie Burks is saying, what data are you relying on here? I have data that says hundreds of thousands of people are going to die. We need to do something. Um, and eventually that message won out at that meeting. Uh, and President Trump delivered the message about the travel ban in the Oval Office address that night, which until that afternoon, it wasn't clear that that was going to happen. Yeah. And that travel ban from Europe was a, a big topic of conversation inside the White House. And, and I want to bring uh, Dylan in because he interviewed a White House official who kind of gives us a really vivid sense of, of what it was like in there. And I, Andrew, you used, used the word before about how there was so much that was disorienting uh, on uh, on March 11th. And I love that word. And I think it was disorienting for people who were inside the White House who were all of a sudden had to try to make these decisions. And Dylan, uh, the White House aide I'm referring to is Olivia Troy, who is the national security advisor to Vice President Pence, who you interviewed. And one of the things she talked to you about was uh, they knew that the WHO uh, was going to make this announcement that uh, the coronavirus was indeed a pandemic. March 11th, we we knew uh, that the WHO was going to announce um, they were going to uh, call it a pandemic, right? That was a decision that they were making. Uh, and they say, we take this matter very seriously. We know what it means to classify this as a pandemic. Uh, and internally in the White House, we were we knew to expect that announcement, which I think leads to some internal discussions on, okay, we've been downplaying the case numbers. The president has been sort of vocal about it not being a big deal and the cases were going to go away. But then we have this announcement coming from the WHO that's flat out saying, no, we, we have a serious problem on our hands and this is global. So Dylan, I mean, not only do they have to make these incredibly difficult decisions about how to deal with this pandemic, but they're also dealing with a president who is either in denial or can't come to acknowledge how serious a problem it is. Right. Yeah. She, so Olivia Troy, she was the national security aide to Vice President Pence and was kind of his liaison on this, on this coronavirus task force. And she kept talking about this tension between the national security side. And I think she, she even referred to it a few times as, as the White House, which was almost like a separate entity the WHO formally declaring this a pandemic, 
definitely accelerated, I think, the or put even more pressure on Trump to do something. She said she was um, that day. Trump even wasn't wasn't going to be the one to make the the travel restriction announcement. It was going to be Vice President Pence. And she was preparing uh, notes for him to take up to the podium. It was going to be, I think she said at 4 p.m. And then at some point she was told, no, the president is going to do it. And and even then it was supposed to be a late afternoon announcement. And then I think through these uh, meetings that were were happening uh, where the Treasury Secretary and Debbie Burks were blowing up, I think then it was decided it was going to be an Oval Office uh, address to the nation. Yeah. And one thing to, to note is it's not just this announcement about the travel restriction. I mean, I think that's that obviously was part of it. It was a big decision. But the thing I think that really kind of escalated it to a Oval Office address with Trump kind of looking weirdly somber and uncomfortable was the markets. Um, the markets were plummeting. And that that's the thing I think that ultimately got through to him. It wasn't the warnings of his public health officials. It wasn't Dr. Fauci saying it's going to get worse. It was the market and his belief that maybe if he came out as the president and spoke, that he could calm the markets and reassure them and say that we're taking action. That's what was worrying him in that moment. And it, it led to this shift. I, I got to say it, uh, you know, I was just thinking today how much it must be killing him that the Dow hit a record high today under President Biden rather than him. You know, one last thing about Olivia Troy, which kind of struck me, and this goes back to what I was saying earlier about uh, what really affected me was I, I think she tells you, Dylan, that later that evening after the Trump Oval Office speech, she learns about uh, Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson. Right. And, it, and and then it really hits home, right? Right. And she, yes, she said she was a huge fan who had seen all his movies, which is almost impossible. Um, <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, I think she said if Tom Hanks can get COVID, anyone can get COVID, which is uh, what a lot of people were thinking. Um, I will also say that during the interview, uh, she had a, uh, it was a little distracting because behind her, uh, it was a video interview. She had a framed picture of Dr. Fauci. And she does talk interestingly about the different factions in the White House. Do we have that clip? I, I would say there's different factions in the White House when it came to the pandemic. I was in the national security lane, right? And I was more on the side of the doctors and the CDC and trying to figure out how we were going to keep this from spreading because it's clearly going to be a crisis here. But there was also the political faction of the White House who I would say had the microphone and controlled the comms on it for the most part and controls the doctors on what they can and cannot say. Um, a, only a, a foreshadowing of the debates to come uh, inside the White House in the ensuing months. Um, another really fascinating interview that was done for this project was Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner, because uh, he makes the decision to suspend the season, the NBA season. And that's another way this really hit home for a lot of Americans to have the basketball season scrapped. Uh, Andrew, tell us about uh, what Silver had to say, and then let's um, let's listen to uh, a bit of his interview. Yeah, one thing that I wasn't aware of, they, they had kind of set this decision in motion some months before. Um, it was really interesting. Adam Silver was saying, look, you know, I've – 
I was in the NBA during the SARS epidemic in H1N1. I'd go to China, people would be wearing masks, you'd get temperature, temperature checked at the airport. This felt like that, like something that was happening somewhere else in China. But then I go to a Brooklyn Nets game. It was late January, he said, so fairly early on. And he ran into uh, David Ho, who was a world-renowned virus expert, just ran into him, coincidentally. They're chit-chatting. Ho was actually brought in in the 90s to be an advisor to the NBA based on his HIV and AIDS research. Um, They're chatting a little bit, uh, not even that much about COVID, but he just happens to ask, um, you know, what are you hearing coming out of China? And Ho says, my lab is beginning to focus almost entirely on this new coronavirus. Silver goes home, kind of sleeps on it, calls him back the next day and says, you know, I've been thinking about it. Would you mind advising the league in the same way you did back in the 90s? And David Ho says, yes. So fairly early on, not that long after that, uh, Silver has the thought, you know, these players, they're playing three and a half games a week. They're in arenas, contain structures with 19,000 people. They pick up, they go to another city, they do press events, they have thousands of people around them. You know, maybe, maybe we should think about getting these guys tested, uh, putting into place some kind of protocol. And so Dr. Ho recommends they do that February, late February, early March, before March 11th, they start testing players. And that leads to this moment where Rudy Gobert from Utah Jazz has some symptoms. I think on March 10th, they're in Oklahoma City to play there. And he gets a COVID test because he's feeling a little sick. It comes back positive. Um, the really dramatic thing, and I, I think we should hear from Silver on this, is it, the game is like about to start when they find this out. They've got 20,000 people. Everybody's on, on the court already. They were had already gone through their warm-ups and they're just standing around. This is such a dramatic moment with the players on the court. And we've got Silver describing it. The, the immediate issue was, should we cancel the game? Now, we knew also that the game was scheduled to tip off roughly at 7 o'clock local time in Oklahoma City. So that was going to be in 15 minutes. I remember as I was talking to... Rick Buchanan, I saw another call on my cell phone, and it was Clay Bennett, who's the principal owner of Oklahoma City Thunder. And he said, I've just heard that there's a positive case from the other team. What are we going to do here? And he, and he was at the game, and he was standing on the court. And he said, you realize the players are on the floor. So we made an immediate decision to have the players return to their locker rooms so we could have at least a few minutes to figure out what we were doing. And incidentally, there were also roughly 19,000 people in his arena. And so we were concerned what it could mean for the fans who were in the building, certainly what it could mean for his team, other members of the, of the Utah Jazz. Yes. So they're trying to decide what to do about this game that's about to start. They realize that, you know, other games are being played. They kind of decide, okay, we're not going to cancel those games. They're already in progress. There's this one other game, I think it was up in Sacramento. And they learned that the official who's scheduled to work the game in Sacramento had officiated a Utah Jazz game earlier in the week. So there's a contact tracing, basically, a connection there. So they've got to make this decision about these two games and then sort of what happens from there. And I think within a very brief period of time, a few minutes, five to 10 minutes, Adam Silver makes this call that we've got to cancel the game uh, in Oklahoma City with the Jazz and we've got to cancel this other game up in Sacramento. And really that means we've got to announce that the NBA season is going to be on a hiatus. But, you know, there's this very poignant moment uh, at the moment when, when, you know, the decision gets made 
And in the stadium in Oklahoma City, the announcer has to tell everybody in the stands that the game has been canceled and they should leave. And he and he says the game tonight has been postponed. You are all safe. And take your time in leaving the arena tonight. I think I think that was poignant to me because at that moment, people just didn't know whether they were in in, in danger or in no danger at all. That was it. You were all safe. Yeah. I mean, after that day, no one felt safe. None of us were safe. Yeah. And we didn't know at the time, but Silver makes this call. I think he's, he, he talked about this in the interview. He's, um, he's going from his office to his, his apartment in, in New York. And it's a really short drive, but he's taking all these phone calls. So he's sitting in his car for like 20 minutes and finally makes the decision. Uh, and then has to go up for you know dinner with his wife. And he talked about what that moment felt like. I remember it being a very emotional decision for me because when, as I said, I was on my way home from work and I ended up sitting in a car outside my apartment building for about 20 minutes on the phone. And I was late for, for to have dinner with my wife. And I walked to an apartment and I said, you're not going to believe what just happened. And I felt you know, this, this surge of, of emotion. I think that because of the TikTok of the real-time events of what I was dealing with, I really didn't have a moment to take it in. And I, and I did sort of have an overwhelmed feeling when I walked in to say, I just made a decision that we're shutting down the entire NBA. And, and again, I, I don't recall, I had, I had heard at that point anything about Tom Hanks but there was there was there was certainly a sense that this was going to have a ripple effect. You know, one of the things that the virus uh, did was just inject this level of fear and paranoia for so many uh, Americans who uh, succumbed to all sorts of wild and crazy conspiracy theories uh, and. This was part of the division in the country the virus caused. And you guys tracked down this woman, Melissa Rain Lively, who fell into the QAnon rabbit hole. And she's got a pretty amazing story to tell. Andrew, you want to explain? Um, so she she went viral, um, as we say, um, uh, I think in July of 2020. And all that anyone knew about Melissa Rain Lively was she was a woman in an Arizona Target who was destroying a mask display. You know, she was the, the iconic anti-masker, um, just flipping out in public. Why? Why? You let everybody else do it? You let everybody else do it? I can't do it because I'm a blonde white woman? Um, and just a sort of emblem of how this thing that's so simple, <laughs> cover your face uh, to keep other people safe, became wrapped up in politics, became wrapped up in conspiracy theories. One of our colleagues, Caitlin Dixon, tracked her down to kind of hear her larger story. And that was part of this, this project. It wasn't just about the things that happened on March 11th. It was about who we were before that and who we became after that. And we wanted to tell the stories of people uh, who maybe weren't big headline names on that day, but how their lives changed in ways that all of our lives have changed, or at least that in, embodied the stories uh, of this last year. And one of those has been misinformation, as you said, the way that stuck in our homes, a lot of people have 
kind of slip down these these rabbit holes of misinformation. QAnon is one of them. So Melissa Rain Lively is fascinating because, and I had no idea about this, she was way ahead of the curve on taking precautions. She had a brother who was married to a Chinese woman who was visiting family in late January in China for the Chinese New Year. And they were starting to see these images of, of people become really, really sick in public. She said, keel over on the sidewalk images that we weren't seeing in the United States. Her brother freaked out, called her up and said, we're going to the airport. We're getting on the next flight back to the U.S. I have a feeling, a feeling they're going to close the borders. And she almost immediately started taking precautions. She, was, she said, I was the first person wearing a mask in the grocery store. By the middle of February, I was, I was staying home all the time. I'd shut down my meetings. Um, uh, people thought I was kind of overreacting. Um, but what happened to her after March 11th is that she felt so overwhelmed by this idea of a pandemic and the threat of a pandemic that she took comfort. I think that's how she put it. She said, QAnon was there to comfort me. It was a coping mechanism. As she went, you know, clicked on these links, there was someone there telling her it's not real. It's not happening. And she described it as a digital brainwashing. There was a lot of information circulating basically about how this was part of a new world order, you know, plan to reset the planet, you know, that this, you know, COVID, not to say I never believed that COVID was a hoax, but I did, you know, really believe that it was a man-made mechanism to basically purport a genocide on people. You know, and that I believe that there was this new world order, you know, of shadow government that was ruthless, you know, in, in, you know, doing these crimes of humanity that would result in people dying, you know, to shift the election, to shift, you know, things in a way, you know, that, you know, would not happen, you know, unless, you know, there was this giant health crisis and, um, you know, I was, I was terrified of that. You know, I felt like, you know, nothing that I knew to be true, you know, was true anymore. You know, when the pandemic hit, it was just like everything clicked and I just felt so out of control. So like going into denial about it, I think was a coping mechanism that, you know, I was used to, um, and that, you know, there was QAnon to comfort me and tell me, oh, it's not real. It's, it's not happening. Wow. It's metaphorically, I was lost kind of stands for a whole big chunk of the American public, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things that this uh, project does so well is through these voices and these people's experiences, um, it really um, kind of lays bare all of these things that happened and that were exposed in our society over the last year, you know, that was, you know, the sort of descent into conspiracy theories, which is, you know, related to the escalation of online misinformation, uh, the politicization of public health. Um, some of the positive things uh, that you guys point out, like the power of science and and the resilience um, of of our country, but one of them was also the uh, the unequal impact of the virus um, on communities of color. And we interviewed a couple of people who, in different ways, represented uh, that issue. One of them, uh, Dylan, I think you interviewed the nurse right. who we think got the first uh, vaccine. Definitely one of the first. Tell, tell us about her. 
Yeah, uh, Sandra Lindsay, she's uh, the ICU nurse. So when the first vaccine was approved, uh, I think it was mid-December, she was um, she was selected uh, an ICU nurse. Uh, she was uh, introduced, I think, by Governor Andrew Cuomo at this event, and she got the got the first shot in New York. But on March March 11th, early March, in her ICU unit, she had one COVID patient the week before March 11th. And then at the end of that week, uh, they were already planning because they knew, you know, based on all these reports. They were preparing for the worst, is what she said. So they were working on opening up a, a separate unit just for coronavirus patients in her ICU. Um, and she went, it was a Saturday, I think, after March 11th. And they opened up this ICU and they had, I guess, a couple of patients in there. She goes home. She has Sunday off. She comes back in Monday morning and it's completely filled with patients. So for her, that was the moment, I guess, that she knew she was going to be dealing with this. She had been hoping hoping for the best, but she had been a vaccine proponent, essentially. Um, she'd been talking about, talking with her nurses, when there's a va- vaccine, I want to get it. I want to be, I'll be the first in line. So when she was given that opportunity, she jumped at it. So final thoughts, guys, after conducting all these interviews and assembling them and, you know, sort of chronicling the emotional roller coaster we've all been through. At the end of the day, is this a story about a country that was crushed or a country that after everything that we all went through showed its resilience? I mean, it's both really. Uh, There's no denying that we were crushed by this. Uh, We were affected in the United States uh, in ways that are completely disproportionate. You know, uh, what percentage of the world's population and what percentage of the world's deaths, you know, more than 500, more than half a million people have died because of this. It is just, I think we're almost numb to the numbers at this point, but it is staggering. And it's clear from... This project, among many other works of you know public health research and reporting, that it didn't have to be that way. You know, it did not have to be this bad. Now we were going to suffer, but we, we we made tons of mistakes. But look, we we have incredible vaccines. More and more people are getting vaccinated every day. I think we hit nearly three million vaccinations in a single day over this last weekend. That is. Again, it's just a miracle. The idea that we would have a vac- vaccine for this within less than a year um, is something that, you know, again, Dr. Fauci said, I think he said 18 months, and that he was being very optimistic. So there's a light at the end of the tunnel now. Um, but it very it's such an American story, isn't it? That the, the way that individualism and conflict got the best of us, but that also the, the strength of, of science and research uh, and rationality is ultimately going to save us in the end. I, I mean, um, it is a very American story. Dylan, do you want to add to uh, uh, or detract from uh, uh, Andrew's uh, somewhat upbeat final note? Yeah, no, I will just say that uh, talking to the, the Sandra Lindsay, the ICU nurse, um, who I can't even imagine, you know, she said she was going home every night, couldn't stop thinking. That's what she said, I think. But she said, you know, the moment that that needle pierced my flesh, I started to feel hopeful. Uh, the weight was lifted off my shoulders. I think that's something that everybody is 
who has gotten the vaccine, who hasn't, who is even just watching these numbers start to rise. And um, we're all hoping to feel that. Yeah, I I, can I make one more point. I, I think we made huge mistakes, political mistakes, societal mistakes, as Dan said, this exposed our vulnerabilities here in the United States, the gaping inequality, uh, the way that this hit communities of color, frontline workers, essential workers, people who couldn't afford to stay home so much harder um, than it did more comfortable Americans. Um, we can't ignore that. We can't ignore the damage caused by the way that public health, something as simple as wearing a mask, was turned into a sign of which political team you're on. It's just, it's just a tragedy. But I will say, at the ground level, talking to people who are just trying to stay safe and keep those around them safe through this, it really exposed like that resilience. You know, I'm thinking of, I talked to a restaurant owner here in Los Angeles, the way they had to decide whether they were going to reopen again and serve food to the community. And if they did that, how they could keep their employees safe. These are people who are working in a tiny kitchen. They're around each other in close quarters every day, all day, interacting with people. They didn't know. Every day they said they were afraid that they were going to get sick, but they kept working. Or a pediatrician in Massachusetts that we spoke to for this story who said she realized when people started coming in, coming back to the doctor as things you know, opened up a little bit in the spring and summer and saying, you know, these were people in her community who maybe didn't speak English as a first language, who had to work throughout this she asked about school for their kids and, 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 and they said, what school, you know, school ended back in March. And she realized that the kids who needed school the most weren't getting it. And she became an advocate in her community for reopening schools. I just think there are a lot of stories like that about people in a terrible situation, um, doing the best they can. And, and in that sense, it's inspiring, not just in terms of the technology, the science of the vaccine that's going to save us in the end, but the way that people have been trying to do their best throughout this. And I think this uh, oral history tells that story as well. It does indeed. Uh, the project is called The Most Unusual Day, how March 11th, 2020 marked the start of the COVID era. You can find it on Yahoo News. Thanks, guys. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.